There's no end to desire. You want to end desire? That's a desire. Right? <laughs> We're screwed. So <laughs> the only question is, Tanha or Chanda? Uh, red zone or green zone? That's really what we're left with, especially as l- animals that are living in this world, among others. So, the, so yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's what's, that's the useful distinction. It's not so much desire craving, or but really, um, as we pursue goals, do we do it from the green zone or the red zone? Do we do it from chanda or tanha? Right. Yeah. That's great. Okay. Other people. And one other thing, too, there's this emphasis strongly in Buddhism about motivation. And that really is the essence. What is, what is motivating us? Like, people can act very Buddhist. And yet, in their mind, what motivates that is ego or fear or some kind of... They're trying to meet new friends at the Buddha bar. I don't know. Um, <laughs> And other times people can be passionate and loose and scruffy and kind of saying the wrong things, but their heart is so good in the moment and what their motivations are are so good. That's the, and that was the Buddha's distinction historically from the Jain traditions of the time that focused on behavior alone, including empty ritual behavior and including your circumstances of birth, the caste you were born in, Brahmin or untouchable, whatnot. And he said no. It's about what's in your mind, especially your intentions, the seed of intention behind what you do. That's what's determinative. That's what's fundamental. So, yeah. All right. Where were you? Someone over here. Yes. He's in my right-sided field of vision. Thank you. Great. Yeah. Um, besides the red zone and the green zone, I find myself in the... You confuse zone a lot. I know. What's the so red, can, green? The brown green. zone, I guess. In between. <laughs> the gray zone. <laughs> the so, pink zone. <laughs> I, I understand the intention is to move to the red zone, I mean the green zone, no matter where you are. Yeah. But sometimes I'm not being able to label what that is, that confusion, whether it's feeling or what that awareness is contacting. like um, It can be um, a little... Um, uh, um, it, it lowers the confidence level mm-hmm. in the practice. Yeah. How do we get over it? <clears throat> well, thank you. And So I think like any distinction, it's a little fuzzy... And yet, on the other hand, just think back on where your mind was, maybe if only for some moments, maybe for longer periods of time, when you just did this meditation. Think about that. Or at any other time when you feel really at ease. It's all fine. Kids are in bed. You're sitting there. Dishes are done. Whatever. It's okay. Body's not in bad, horrible pain. Not upset about anything. So then your, the cat crawls into your lap, right? Contrast that with stuck in traffic, already 20 minutes late for a meeting with the boss from hell, and then some, someone's on the news that really irritates you or something. You know, and let alone 
much more serious situations where you're running for your life. You're, 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 you're being terribly mistreated. Uh, something awful has happened. So there's, at the extreme, the poles, if you will, the ends of the spectrum, they're really quite different from each other. And so then in, the point is, it's okay if there's a sort of muddle sometimes in the middle. One point is that in terms of those three systems, uh, avoiding, approaching, attaching, safety, satisfaction, connection, a person can be, in my view, in the green zone, as it were. They're at ease, they're at peace in two systems, while the other one is flashing red. For example, maybe someone has said something to you really hurtful, so your connection system is upset, but at the same time, you know there's enough food in the pantry, there's enough money in the bank, there's, you're, you're basically okay in terms of rewards, and you're, you're, you haven't just been fired, you haven't been, um, suddenly your house hasn't burned down, okay, so the uh, uh, satisfaction system's okay, and you're physically safe, and you know people you really care about are physically safe too, and wow, you're really resentful and hurt. So then the question becomes, does that one system that's flashing red infect and contaminate the other two? Or do the other two sort of calm it down and ease it and then we kind of slide back again? Uh, The other distinction is what's in the core of your being? However you want to put that. That territory that the Buddha was referring to when he made the distinction between what invades the mind and remains versus what doesn't. So in the core of the being... What's the state there? Is there at least one-tenth of one percent of you that's wise, loving, and at peace? Even if 99.9% of you around that is totally cranky, uh, is there that core? And then maybe it's one percent of you. Maybe it's ten percent of you. And then it it kind of grows out from there. Or it feels like it's underneath it all. And then how rapidly can you... um, Take refuge in that underlying calm, clear, wise, open-hearted, at-peace place from which you're dealing with all the anger rolling through your mind, all the fantasies of vengeance, all the deep hurt and trauma rolling through your mind. So these, to me, are the questions. Can you... um, uh, in real time, notice when you're getting contracted. Can you recover and come back to center pretty rapidly? And can you uh, have a sense of your core being where you take your stand, even as you deal with challenges and manage red zone type feelings in your mind? And then I would just keep going. Yeah. 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 Okay. Maybe one more person? All right, good. A smart move. Get peripheral vision, wave the arm, drawn to movement, you know what I mean? That's how, that's how it works. Okay. Thank you. Um, I'm going to read just a bit of my notes to just put you in where you said something. Um, there three fundamentals of need, safety, satisfaction, connection, emerging forth, sense of things, heartfelt, related, motivational system activated, reaction to par- patriarchal, excuse me, system. Excuse me. Can you expand on that? Just all of it or only the last (laughs) sentence? 
well, you did a lot on those three areas, and then you just popped in 10 seconds or so of that. And I was like, oh, what is he talking about? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, <clears throat> yeah. Well, I feel there's certain things that I, I have a genuine, you could say, learnedness about them just by training, a psychologist. And someone trained in Buddhism, and definitely about the brain. Other things, it's more like I have a personal opinion. So I want to distinguish the level of authority between the two. Uh, And if I'm following you right, I find it's really interesting how many discussions of motivation in Western psychology, now really global psychology, but Western, I'll just call it historically, Western philosophy and psychology. Almost all discussions of motivation are, they only have two aspects, pleasure, pain, approach, avoid. Right? And I think, oh, that's interesting. Or neutral, or it doesn't matter. Neutral. And then even in the teachings of the Buddha, uh, you have that pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And I just step back from it and I think, well, wait a second here. Really? For example, let's just talk about relationships without getting into creativity and spiritual practice and subtle exotic states of consciousness. Just raising children, falling in love, falling out of love. Um, The self-worth that's so rooted in our relationships. Does all that really boil down to just pleasure pain? I just doesn't seem plausible to me. Also, if you look at evolution, especially the last several million years, last million or so especially, we're so social, profoundly social. Um, In many ways, a dog... So they do these IQ tests of two-year-old humans, adult chimpanzees, and adult dogs. All right? That adult chimpanzee can solve physical problems better than the dog or the two-year-old kid. But social cognition, reading other people, working cooperatively to solve a problem, two-year-old kid and a dog can beat that chimpanzee. (laughs) So just talking now about the two-year-old kid alone, we're so social. So for me, it's really important to emphasize our motivations that that have to do with relatedness in ways that really transcend uh, mere pleasure or pain. And you can think of many examples in the interpersonal sphere where if you really try to understand what's motivating you, it just doesn't deconstruct a pleasure and pain in a narrow sense. Um, and so I, I would assert that. And then beyond that, I think that it's really interesting to be attentive to the possibility of a hedonic tone or feeling tone that's not just pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, which is how the Buddha describes them. And it's also not what in Western psychology and philosophy is described as pain or pleasure, you know, pleasant and unpleasant and pleasant. Right? I, th- I think it's useful to observe that, wow, maybe what's emerging is this fourth hedonic tone. I think it's more subtle. I think the profundity of our relational social attachment motivations and regulatory processes is really evident and enormous and that's really evolved um a two-year-old human is more social than an adult chimpanzee 
in many, many kinds of ways, including empathic attunement, inner subjectivity, theory of mind is called, stuff like that. Um, and so it just makes sense to me that there's been, on the heels of that, what's called social brain theory or evolution, on the heels of that there is uh, adaptively an emergent, distinct hedonic tone of, call it relatedness, I originally called it heartfeltness, it's not quite the right word, that's what I think. So that's my overview. And then inside that, I step back and now all that I'm willing to claim a little bit of authority about. This comment, I'm just, just a civilian. <laughs> it occurs to me factually that almost all of the individuals who've been leaders of and engaged with the lineage in Western philosophy and psychology and the Buddhist tradition related to this territory are male. And I often reflect on the truth is the truth to me is not gendered. It's all you know, but the description of the truth and the practices related to uh, evolving into resting in and as truth. Those are very those are very culturally determined and shaped. And I imagine some often like what how these perspectives would have emerged if it had been primarily women rather than primarily men. To the extent that even that distinction means anything. Um, had been involved with it. So that was my shot there, a little bit of a zing at the end. But I, I, but, I think, and, but I also think there's a place for kind of pushing the pendulum hard the other way to maybe it'll come back to center. And that's a little bit of my push. If nothing else, it helps us be more mindful of all the dynamics of moment-to-moment experiencing, to, to pay attention to the relatedness. And, yeah. so, did that speak to it? Okay, okay yeah. Yeah. All right. Onward. Yes, you. Oh, thank you. This is very good. Um, so, uh, I want to just create an opportunity right now to talk about ride sharing. All right. So, do you, you want to say where you're headed? You're going to the East Bay, right? Anybody? Ryan? Going that way? You okay? How about we just do it? Anybody in this section of the room need a ride? Do you want to say where? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm from New York, so I'm working this <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> but um, it's, it's definitely East Bay, and I could go a little further if I have to. So where are you again? Where? Are you going to? Are you going to Berkeley or Oakland? Do you remember? Okay. Anybody going to Oakland? So I think your best bet is Richmond, and then take it from there. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. Okay, good. Okay, good. You're, you're set. All right, anybody else over here? Great. Good. All right. Anybody need a ride here? Here? All right. Okay. Great. Let's take a ride to now. Right now. All right. I think there are two sides to practice. I've alluded to this before. 
there's the side where um, we step out of what creates suffering and pain. Great. And there's also the side where we cultivate. We cultivate. We develop what's beneficial. There's this nice um, Tibetan saying, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. Sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. Sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. In other words... um, Sometimes we start with cultivation and then there's a breakthrough and then we have to cultivate to kind of build in the breakthrough, kind of backfill after it in an upward spiral. Uh, Another similar uh, saying, moments of awakening many times a day. And sometimes when there's that awakening, there's a recognition of what was always already true that was wonderful, but it was just obscured and covered over with a lot of mental sludge. Um, Great. But if you can't stabilize that sense of ultimate love, bliss, consciousness, uh, then you need to go back into cultivation. So the, the two support each other in a nice circular kind of way. And for me, the takeaway from that, especially in meditation, is to uh, uh, rest your mind upon what calls your heart. Rest your mind upon what's calling you. Is a quieter, more peaceful mind calling you? Is a greater stability of steadiness of mind calling you? Is uh, a more relaxed hanging out at the front edge of now calling you? Is a falling away of self-criticism and an emergence of self-acceptance calling you? Resting your mind there. Resting your mind there. And I think often we have an intuition of, okay, what's the next step of development? What's my growing edge? And then we, we kind of try to marinate in that and, and rest there in our formal and informal practice so, we, so that we become more established there. And that way of being, that uh, more relaxed, more open, more loving, more at ease uh, way of being becomes more and more our resting state. Yeah. Okay? So, the point of all that in the Buddhist frame is ultimately it's awakening. I just want to call that out. as That's what the Buddha was talking about. He's using the metaphor of the heartwood. He was a gentleman farmer. He grew up that way in the gentry 2,500 years ago. Very agricultural. So people cared a lot about the heartwood of a tree being the strongest part of a tree. The essence. The gist. And he's saying here that we do our practices. It's fine to, in this progressive process... It's fine to uh, become happier and calmer and wiser, uh, a little more mindful, a little more compassionate. Great. But the ultimate point is complete liberation. We you know, may, in this life, only get as far as we walk out of the dusty plains up into the lower foothills. But we can see in the distance Mount Everest, the snowy peak. And we trust in the path and we're headed in that direction. And the Buddha was clear a lot that he was encouraging people to go all the way. And he made it really clear, historically, that anyone could go all the way. You just had to really practice. Uh, Men, women, Brahmins, untouchables, householders, monastics. It wasn't about any of that. It was about sincerity of practice and effort and, you know, and and what... um, has been handed to you, and certainly in this life, in terms of capabilities and stuff you've got to deal with. Yeah? 
uh, well, it was a TV show. No, I'm kidding. No. That, uh, uh, in this, you mean historically? Uh, the little I know is that there were, uh, the caste system has evolved in the last 2,500 years, if evolved is the right word, um, and yet there were people of the time who were definitely very low caste. And it's historically true that the Buddha confronted a lot of Brahmins who had come to him. And he would interact with them as a peer in their social class, because he was, partly because they would you know, listen to him more initially, but then he would endlessly confront them about what was really happening inside their mind. And his critiques were really fierce. The empty practices are not going to awaken you. And he welcomed into their community people who were low status. But once you join the monastic community, all those previous distinctions were irrelevant. And there's actually texts that I'm remembering right now in which he just goes through different possibilities. And it's possible for anyone. So, I mean, and... Yeah. And there's... yeah. I'll leave it at that. Okay, good. So, got it? So even though we're maybe not you know, getting all the way to Mount Everest, that's ultimately the end, just to call it out, in this tradition, which you don't have to buy into if you don't want to. All right. So, in the present. It's interesting how many great teachers, so many traditions, talk about the power of now. Eckhart Tolle, among others. And here's a nice line from the Dhammapada, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present as it has emerged, just, before, just as it disappears, and cross over to the farther shore of existence. Farther shore of existence is, a, is kind of coded language for the unconditioned, the deathless, the transcendental, that which is in some meaningful way distinct from the natural world or natural phenomena of conditioned, impermanent matters. With mind wholly liberated, you shall come no more to birth and death. That's also the larger cosmology of Buddhism and some other religions about reincarnation and so forth. The idea being not that this life is horrible and we want to get rid of it. It's just that with progression and practice, the causes that lead to rebirth start to fall away ultimately being quenched. The word for Nibbana means to quench or extinguish like a flame. Just, the flame goes out. Okay. So, right? Be here now. Right? Good idea. Great. The Dhammapada agrees. I like this line from Suzuki Roshi. Uh, Enlightenment is to forget this moment and grow into the next. Wow. Just think about that as a one-sentence statement. I mean, he's not kidding around. This is not some kind of new age trope. This is, he's saying, enlightenment is. He's interested in enlightenment. Enlightenment is to forget this moment and grow into the next continuously. And then he has a line, fade into emptiness as you exhale. So use the exhalation in just sitting meditation, zazen. Um, use exhalation as a way to completely let go. Every exhalation, one after another. Pretty powerful. Okay? So then the question is, how to actually come into the present moment? And for all the talk about be here now, what is now? Now seems like an incredible mystery. How could it be that 
something that is, by definition, instantaneous. It's temporally, it's infinitely thin. And yet it contains everything, continuously. Including the causes of the past, creating the future. What up? It's right under our nose all the time. So, now let's bring it into experience. Imagine that uh, in super slow motion. We take a second of experience and we slice it into a thousand slices, milliseconds. Now we have a thousand milliseconds in a second. And let's start the clock running. So you're right at the front edge of that second. Something happens, right? The sound. Right? And then within probably about 10 or 20 milliseconds, one of the three major uh, elements of the attentional system that we share with other non-human animals, one of the three elements being alerting. Within around 20 milliseconds, right, uh, a, uh, there's a, a mobilization of alerting to something has happened. Don't know, what, don't know where it is, don't know what it is, just something has happened. Something has happened. Alert it. Okay? Then, over the next 100 or 200 or 300 milliseconds, the second aspect of the attentional system starts mobilizing. And again, we've got neurons who can fire 5, 50 times a second. No big deal. Right? A tenth of a second is a long time for a neuron. Um, those systems start to orient. Where is it? So again, you think about this is what evolved to keep our ancestors alive in very dangerous circumstances in which most of them died in the process of being attacked and eaten by some other animal. Really. So, orienting. And then by the end of that second, uh, a third aspect of the attentional networks, it's, it's called really resourcing or mobilizing. It's basically you're starting to mobilize other resources in the brain to manage it. Now that I know that something has happened, now that I'm oriented to it, <coughs> do I, what do I do with it? <coughs> Is it neutral and meaningless? Is it a threat I need to run from or fight? Is it something I can eat? Is it a friendly member of my species? Uh, what's, what's there? You know, that, that's all in the first second. Okay? So... What we're going to do momentarily is slide into uh, some practices, various practices that are routinely used to help people strengthen the first of these three neural networks of the attentional system, the alerting aspect. The nature of alerting, if you imagine the first half second of the front edge of the windshield of consciousness, okay? You're here, time's moving through you, or you're moving through time. That first half second, second or so, something's happening. You don't need to know what it is. You don't need to conceptualize it. You don't need to label it. You don't need to like it. You don't need to know what to do about it. Something is happening. Something is happening. The next thing is happening. Mom, you know, half second after half second after half second. 
That, that is, that's the sense of the alerting function, and it's centrally involved in certain kinds of meditation, especially, uh, you could say, choiceless awareness, where you're just right at the front edge of now, just being with what's there, or in Zen, Shikantaza, just sitting. You're just there. You're not trying to have insight. You're not trying to manage what's happening. You're just there. In the process of doing that, you strengthen that alerting neural network. There are multiple neural networks that are involved in the attentional system. You strengthen it because neurons that fire together wire together. And as you strengthen it, you become more able to hang out at the front edge of now. And to me, that's of interest and why I'm suggesting it, because the great teachers all talk about it. One way or another, many other people, not in a spiritual framework, talk about the profundity of just right at the front edge of now. And how so much suffering comes when we pull away from now and go into the simulator and spin out into our default mode network and so forth. All right? Okay? So then the question, oh, allocentric. I'll get to that in a little bit. This has to do with networks. And so now we're, on, we're, we're in nowness. I'm in nowness with you. Where I'm going to go, uh, oh, sorry. The third place we're going to go is allness, which is the third step. Nowness, wholeness, allness, oneness. And just to kind of preview that very briefly, as we'll see, in terms of allness or being one with everything, being connected with everything, there are also neural networks in the brain that uh, don't privilege your personal perspective. They don't take things personally. They regard things more impersonally. Those networks seem to be involved when people drop into being one with everything. And those networks, those allocentric networks, distinct from egocentric networks, which I'll talk about, are very entwined with the alerting networks. So by strengthening the, your ability to just hang out at the front edge of now without trying to make sense of things, without trying to solve problems, there's a place for those things. But we're consumed in our culture with that. We so rarely just be with what's there without trying to fix it, change it, or eat it, right? <laughs> or, or pleasurize ourselves by it. We just um, do something instrumental with it. You know, it's really uncommon to just sit there and be with things. Okay, and so the two go together, right? So that's what that is. All right, so now I'm going to segue into a practice. If you fall asleep during it, it's okay to stand up. Um, all right. So, letting go. We're going to move into it. What I want to do is to name some things that are helpful and then talk as little as possible during the meditation we're about to do. So, first of all, it helps to rest in the green zone, if I could just use that term as a shorthand, because when we're at all agitated, it's hard to just stay in the now. Because we're, we're agitated. We want to fix something. We want to think about it. We want to figure it out. We want to act upon it. So we'll start with, and it helps to cultivate a, a sense of what we've explored already, that you're okay, needs are sufficiently met, resting in peace, contentment, and love. That's helpful. 
it helps to stay with something kind of simple that's continuously changing, such as breathing. So the sense of breathing. Maybe the sound, it's also useful to be aware of because sounds tend to be changing, even subtle sounds. People moving near you, um, external sounds, traffic noises. That helps. It also helps to really focus on letting go. So there's a traditional instruction to be aware of the ending of experiences. Experiences coming to an end. A little later on, it's also helpful to be aware of what's arising, emerging into awareness. So instead of getting attached to anything in the moment, because as soon as you attach to it, you're taken out of the moment. And you're, you're preoccupied with whatever you're attached to. <clears throat> so you can help yourself by emphasizing, releasing, relinquishing. The Buddha uses the language of relinquishing, renouncing, abandoning, disentangling. It's about releasing, letting go. So these are cues. I'm just reviewing them so I don't have to talk about them while we do this. It helps to not try to understand anything when you start doing this practice. No need to conceptualize. As soon as you take half a second to conceptualize something, poof, it's the moment has gone right by. No need to connect anything with anything else. It's okay if it's chaotic. Whatever's passing through awareness in the stream of consciousness, going right by you, um, whoosh, it's disappeared before you even can label it. Whoosh. You're not trying to gain anything for yourself. They say in Zen, no gaining idea. Okay. So let's slide into this practice now. Do it for maybe 15 or so minutes. See what happens when you help yourself just hang out, receiving and letting go simultaneously at the front edge of now.
If your mind wanders, it's normal. Come back right now.
There's a Tibetan meditation instruction, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, and leave your mind alone.
I'd like to slide pretty directly into abiding as wholeness, building on the meditation. And then after we do the next practice, we'll take take another break. Before we go further, though, any quick questions about or comments about staying present now? It's perfectly normal if it seems difficult and the mind wanders and then come back. And I think the thing to do is to establish a growing sense of just kind of what it feels like. Okay, so two people, first you and then you. So first you, right there. If I follow you right, um, it's, it can be a little hard to talk about this. So first point, what we do procedurally in a meditation is not designed to be a way of life. And often people will take meditative methods or therapeutic methods and they'll turn it into a general way of life. It's a problem. So... Um, it's, it's okay. We have this endowment. We can think about the past, imagine different futures. We can use it for our own sake, that of others. Good. Um, on the other hand, just think about how often we're just lost in thought. And even here, how, how many seconds out of 15 minutes times 660 seconds, what's that, 900 seconds? There's probably more than that. Some do the math right. Something like that. Nine thousand. Yeah, someone like that. It's a lot. How many of those seconds were you fully present in the front end of now? It's hard to do it. But on the other hand, if we train in it, plausibly, there are benefits of that, and those neurological benefits are supported by wisdom traditions. So, first point. Um, then, what is it that's at the front end of now? Now, maybe what's right there is just the changing sensations of breathing. Maybe a thought arises, like a worry about something, or we're upset about something. Usually when that happens, though, we're hijacked by it. And we're no longer at this just pure alerting function. We've shifted into orienting and responding, and then we're into problem-solving. And we're into our, right? Musing about it, thinking about it, mulling. There's a place for that. But we're no longer just sitting, just being, just present, wide open. So now, the point is, if I follow your question fully... Um, once we are caught, there are a lot of practices to do. You know, we've talked about that and, and things people can do about that. Uh, in terms of this particular meditation and training to be just now and to start appreciating what's under our nose all the time, this extraordinariness of the endless ending of everything, always. Whoa. But simultaneously, the endless emergence of everything, at least in this life. Okay. Um, to do that, 
it helps to be relatively happy already. Or relatively in a setting like this where we just say, for this 15 minutes, I know I've got to worry about that. I know I've lost this. I know I'm dealing with that around the edges. But for right now, this little sanctuary, this little refuge, it's just 15 minutes or just one minute. I'm going to try to train in just being present now. Um, And so to do that, it does help to cultivate, as, uh, as I did here in the previous slides, to find that sense of all rightness, safety, peace, you know, because it's, it's, that supports being able to just be present now. But it's not designed to be a way of life. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great observation that when you were dealing with like the Santa Rosa, et cetera, fire, and you were very up in there, and it was very close to your home, and um, you're saying when you're you notice that being upset about things were just triggered, understandably, that you observed, I think as many other people have observed, that when you just kind of come right into the immediacy of this moment as it is, what it is, for better or worse, that tends to reduce or it sort of pulls the fuel away from a lot of suffering. Yeah. It, yeah, and that, so that's a really good point, I think. Um, yeah. Okay, one more person? Yeah. Um, is this on? Yeah, if you... <clears throat> I, I'm not sure I understand my question itself, but I'll give it to you anyway. Um, when, you're, when you were talking about alertness and liberating the mind, and that's kind of connected to emptiness, I mean, you reach that point where the past, the present, and the future are interconnected, but you understand that. I guess in this one. And yeah. then the emptiness is the gap between all those connections. And it relates to something I've been reading in neuroscience about emptiness and um, quantum physics and the notion of the interconnectedness. Um, but there's emptiness between the interconnectedness. Yeah. So I think probably it's above my pay grade. Well, it's above uh, mine, too. Yeah. But <laughs> Way above it. So, um, where is this here? Yeah. So here's Suzuki Roshi. What is he talking about? And um, this is taken from a book, a wonderful book I recommend it called Not Always So, which is a collection of talks he gave uh, that are each about three pages long. And you just read one at a time and just watch your mind dissolve because he draws you in. So what I think here, the, em- the, the meaning of the word emptiness, I think, is he's basically practicing with ultimate dying and uh, ultimate letting go of any attachments at all as a training process. 
like if we were giving this practice to a child or a friend or a client or any person, we would say, and by the way, as you fade into emptiness, as you exhale, I hope that you come into somethingness as you inhale. I hope, I hope you're going to be here after you exhale. Right, so it's okay to wish that for ourselves. But in the moment of the practice, it is an interesting practice experientially to imagine yourself. Again, be careful about doing this if you're morbid or you've been traumatized or you tend to dissociate. Da-da. But to be just to play with what would that be like to completely let go and to be all right with whatever happens next. I hope I'm still here, but to practice with being all right with not being like, whoa, if that's useful. Only if it's useful, rather than taking you into a bad place. So that there's a old line: uh, you need to become somebody before you become nobody. So if you have any issues around being nobody already, start with being a somebody, and then then play around. Okay, that so that's one meaning of emptiness. Another meaning of emptiness uh, is pretty present in the experience of just being in this alerting front edge of now practice where um, because so much is happening so quickly and it's it's changing so fast when you're just right here uh, nothing starts seeming really substantial and brick-like experientially it feels foamy and insubstantial and transient and changing and that's useful, that recognition is useful. Seeing, recognizing that quality. Yeah, it's like that. Is useful because, and the Buddha recommended it, and the, the more Mahayana thread really recommends it, that, that, that felt recognition of emptiness in the meaning of lack of absolute self-existent thingness or substantiality. And because when you're right here at the front edge, you see the nature of your experience has this foamy and substantial fizzing quality. You become more disenchanted about it and you cling to it less. You crave it less. You essentialize it less. You're less attached to it. It's there. It's interesting. It's, but then it's just gone instantly and you realize, going back to our very first slide, um, I'm going to go all the way back to the very beginning. Then I'll come forward again. There we go. We keep trying to attach to and hold on to what's transient. And we keep trying to essentialize and thingify elements of our experience that are insubstantial and interdependently um, fuzzy in their boundaries. And right there is such a structural basis of suffering. Try to hold on to what's changing and try to turn into a thing what's more like a cloud than a brick in our experience. So if we train in this alerting stuff in which there's a recognition of emptiness and this meaning of emptiness as a, as a distinguishing feature of experience, that it's empty of absolute thingness, as we train in that, then we start lightening up more. And also we don't take ourselves so seriously, pompously and all that. Then there's this other last meaning of emptiness as some big void out there cosmically. And the problem is a lot. You read 
things and you realize they're using the word empty in two different ways in one paragraph or sentence. And the, the main meaning of it is just that things are empty of uh, experiences. And most of materiality is empty of substantiality of, and stability. It's always changing and fizzy and intertwined. Did I thoroughly mess with it further? Anyway, okay. And as to the whole, and then there's this teaching sometimes in, deep, in early Buddhism where they talk about these spaces between thoughts and there are seven trillion thoughts per second and there's a space between them. I just don't know about that. Because even neurologically, there's so much continuity of so many distributed processes that overlap each other in the substrates of consciousness, the neural substrates of consciousness, that I... I just get that the tiles are laying on top of each other a lot. Um, but, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Good, all right. Let's slide into wholeness, okay? All right, great. Good. So, as I said in the very beginning, if you look at the nature of suffering, it's cookie. Thought of cookie. I want cookie. Now we have two parts. So, percept of cookie, image of cookie, memory of cookie, part. I want cookie, part. No, Rick, you need to cut down the carbs. No cookie for you. Bad boy. Another part. Now we have the third part. Then comes in Tarbrock's voice. No, Rick, you need to love yourself. It's only a cookie. All right. All right. Part, 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 part. Instant suffering, right? And you just look at the nature of so much suffering. Um, the inner conflict, these inner tussles, these subpersonalities struggling with each other. Ugh. But if you relax, kind of go out into experience as a whole, mind as a whole, just no suffering there. There could be pain, there could be sadness in the, there, but it doesn't need to be a problem that it's there. We don't need to suffer that it's there. Right? So... Oh, the cookie. All right, she says, we have to decide to have the cookie. Yeah, there's a, a lot of ordinary cognizing and thought. You know, you, like you, right there. I know you're different from you, and you're different from me. And there's a, there's a bit of a place for that. But you just think about interpersonal conflict. You, as soon as you start getting into me and you, us and them, whoo, trouble starts to begin, right? But when you start relating to others as more part of a larger us, larger whole, then there's less trouble. Just generally. But that, sure, I, I agree. We have to do something about the cookies. But All right. So the point of all this, all right, see, you see what's up here? I want to talk about the brain. So one of the, a lot of neuroscience is interesting, but I don't think it's very pragmatically helpful. But there's some recent findings, and in the back of the slide set are seven slides of references including books and interesting neat papers. Check it out. Um, there's a, 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 a line of research from Norm, Norman Farb, and other people who work with him that has identified the fact that, as I said earlier, when people are lost in thought or in any kind of a stressful way trying to solve problems, they tend to activate networks in the midline of the brain. 
So if you ask people in an MRI, maybe you show them some words, adjectives that could describe people. And you say to them, you know, when you look at those words, what we want you to do is think about how they apply to you. Have, are they relevant in, in the past? Are they less relevant today? Think about how that's about you. Do you think it's good for you to be like that? Do you think you shouldn't be so much like that? When you do that, bingo, networks in the midline of the brain, the blue ones, start activating. Self-referential processing. On the other hand, if you give people a classic John Kabat-Zinn style mindfulness prompt to just be in the, be in the present moment, relax, just allow whatever's arising to be there, reactions to those words that describe people are there in your mind, the, the shapes of the words are present in your mind as well, you're just being present, what happens? They activate networks, the red ones, on the sides of the brain. Mainly the right side, uh, these are probably right, all right-handed subjects who have verbal sequential processing in the left hemisphere and gestalt holistic things as a whole processing in the right hemisphere. So they're activating lateral networks, especially on the right side. This is reversed for many left-handed people. But it's the same idea, midline versus lateral. What also seems to go with that is that when people are surprised, what happens when you're surprised? Alerting. Something's happened. Something has happened. Humor is surprise. Uh, also, when people go out to a panoramic view, a 10,000-foot view, bird's-eye view, they activate networks in the sides of their brain, lateral mode networks. Now, a typical person in college sophomore, in the MRI, when you give them that prompt, you know, that classic mindfulness-based stress reduction prompt to just be with the experience, they can activate these lateral networks for a breath or two or three. And then, whoosh, shopping list. Their mind is wandering yet again. On the other hand, research shows that with training, people can stabilize activation of these uh, red midline networks, pardon me, red lateral networks, and in the process of which, rest um, in open awareness, which then starts to extend into a sense of the body as a whole, experience as a whole, in the present moment, with little sense of self. There are various factors of that abiding as mind as a whole, such as being aware of the whole body. Um, Also, seeing things from a panoramic perspective. Also, not knowing. Surprise. Again, don't know. It's not duh mind, it's just don't know mind, don't know. Korean Zen master Song Song talks about don't know mind, don't know, don't know. All right, yeah. Yeah, it, it supports it, it supports it. Because if you're conceptualizing and knowing, I mean there's a knowing that naturally arises, but getting caught up in knowing, uh, there's a place for it but it tends to engage that midline network and everything that comes with it. So if you think about so much of modern life and schooling, starting in kindergarten, in conventional schooling and then conventional jobs, neurons that fire together, wire together, is an endless training in midline hegemony, midline imperialism, control. And we get sucked in there. We get drawn there. And then we get, since we're more drawn there, we 
do more midline type stuff, thinking about the future, spinning out about the past, taking things personally, being uh, analytic and conceptual and um, instrumental. And then that strengthens those networks even more. Round and round we go. And um, that's why I think that while there are a few people who probably would be served by training in more midline capability, like balancing your checkbook, kid, (laughs) my children. But anyway, um, most of us, we included massively, really, it's like we are Popeye or something. We have this huge bicep and an underdeveloped tricep, if that's how Popeye looked. But you know what I mean? We're really good at midline processes, but we need to train in lateral activation. So momentarily, I want to go into you with you as a practice that um, I've <clears throat> done myself a lot, taught people, where you, you just notice that what happens in your mind when you start registering the sensations of breathing as a single experience with different elements as part of a whole. It's like eating a good stew or something that has multiple flavors, but it's experienced as a unified whole. Maybe dancing with someone, um, or son is a dancer. Dance with someone, and many, many things are happening, and yet there's a sense of the whole dance being this ongoing fluid process. So we're going to go out to breathing as a whole. Then we're going to include sound. Then we're going to go out to mind altogether, including the element of consciousness in it. And see what happens when you just accept and relax as mind as a whole. And then we'll take a break. So that's the idea here. Okay? Want to try it? Yeah. I hope so. Because that's what I'm going to do. All right. All right? And this sense of things as a whole will tend to crumble. Um, I suspect people who live in nature a lot, including people, first people around the world and hunter-gatherer cultures still, are more comfortable with this way of being. Uh, people who are maybe more artistic, more in their whole body, like dancers, uh, movement teachers, you might find this easier. For me, at least, it has taken a bit of training to get used to experiencing things as a whole. Right. If your mind wanders again, it's normal, just bring it back. I'll offer a few suggestions, as few as possible. This will be about 20 minutes, and then we'll take a break. Okay? Great. So here we go. So again, as usual, it helps to be relatively undisturbed and at ease. So letting go of any parts that call your attention, like problems you need to solve or things you're trying to figure out. Just letting go of them and seeing if you can find a basic sense of all rightness and well-being. So to begin, 
Be aware of the sensations of breathing in an area of your chest. Maybe an area roughly the size of what your hand could cover or even just the palm of your hand. And see what it's like to be aware of the sensations of breathing in that part of your chest, recognizing that there are actually many little sensations all happening in that area of your chest. And yet what you're doing is being aware of them as a whole. It's like you're aware of the whole stew, being aware of the different flavors in it. Here you're aware of this whole area all of its elements known together as a single gestalt, single unified percept, continuously. From here, we're going to gradually expand out to the whole body. I'll go at a certain pace. Feel free to go more slowly or more quickly. It's natural for the sense of this whole to crumble or retention to be drawn into just a part. Then just go back to the whole. Now widening awareness to include as much of your torso and rib cage as possible. See if you can include the sensations in your back, sort of the back side of the chest. sides of your chest as well.
You can include internal sensations in your chest, such as the feeling of your heart beating. Diaphragm rising and falling. Sensations of coolness as air comes into your chest. Sensations of warmth as it leaves. All of these included. And moving down to include sensations in the belly, stomach, the lower portions of the abdomen and the lower portions of the back. So more and more the whole torso is your object of attention, the sensations of breathing in it. experienced as a whole. Along the way, as you do this, you might notice a falling away of the sense of self. In the moment of experiencing something as large as the whole torso, as a whole, in that moment, it's hard to take anything too personally. In other words, be aware of what it's like be aware of something as a whole.
and as you like, including your neck, the top of your torso, the way your head moves slightly as your chest rises and falls. Sensations in your shoulders, rippling down into your arms, even your hands. Gradually including all the sensations in your head, your face, your neck, your arms, related to breathing. while also being aware of what's happening in your stomach, your heart, and your back. And then gradually including sensations in your hips, pelvic floor, legs, knees and feet. As you abide increasingly as a whole body breathing taking the whole body as a gestalt.
including as well all body sensations, including those unrelated to breathing. And seeing what it's like to bring sounds in. Wove it into this single experience. Sensations and sounds. Both aspects of experience known simultaneously. And as you can, exploring and opening, widening, to include more and more aspects of experience. Thoughts, sights, images, hedonic tones, all of it. helping yourself to really include everything you possibly can. Points of view, the perspective of I, what feels like 
internal dynamics in your personality, anything else as well, and also awareness, so that in the widest, most inclusive way, mind as a whole, moment by moment, is taken as a whole. Mind as a whole, moment by moment, proceeds as a single, unified process. What's that like? Nothing left out. Any sense of problem falling away. It's not like there's a sense of I watching the mind process. The sense of I is part of the mind process.
Thanks for trying that. I find that myself both profound and difficult. Uh, And yet, a kind of within reach, step-by-step path that can lead to this dramatic sense of, wow, mind as a whole, no problem. Stuff to do. Cookies to give to other people. Um, But not a problem. Including getting that the sense of I that witnesses, as it were, the mind process, it's just part of the mind process. It's part of phenomenology unfolding too. It's part of the stream of consciousness. Nothing's left out. Consciousness is part of the stream of consciousness. Nothing's left out. And when you kind of, you just watch your mind, there's this tendency to want to do this dualistic subject-object division of some kind. Uh-huh. This is the level where it's all included, taken as an integrated whole. Whoa. And then what's that like when that happens? Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, there's really an invitation here, hello, uh, to, to be um, very experiential about it. You know, and after we do it, conceptualizing, useful, in it, the more experiential, as you know, the more experiential, the better. Well, let's take a break. I'll happily chat with you during the break. Uh, please come back. Please come back, period, and come back at 3.30, right? Because then we really, get, we have two to go, right? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.